are sitting down, you may get out your Bibles. Today we have two scripture lessons. We will be looking at Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, and Exodus 32, verses 1 through 8. So I'll give you a minute to find both of those. I'll begin reading in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Then turn over to chapter 32, and we'll read the first eight verses. This is the story of the golden calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow, Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made a calf, made into it an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So we are continuing our sermon series through the Ten Commandments. We looked last week at the first commandment and are now looking at the second, and let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we seek to study your word, that you would be with, um, yeah, be with us and apply it to our hearts. Teach us what it means to follow it in truth. You would be with all of us sinners as it shows us our sin, and with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus who forgives and covers our sin. Amen. So one of the things I have noticed in parenting is that every child is a born lawyer. I don't know if you have ever picked up on that, but every, they will take your rules and, and things and, and apply them in like the narrowest possible sense just to get away with things. So we've had discussions where kids have said things like, well, you said not to hit him, but I was kicking him. Or you, you, said, you said you wouldn't give me a cookie, but see, I just went and got it myself. Um, I'm not saying mean things, I'm singing them, was actually an argument I remember 
one of our kids making. They're taking that rule and applying it in the narrowest possible way. And it's the reason that parents in exasperation all at some point, even though they swore they wouldn't when they were kids, have said, like, yes, that's what I said, but that's not what I mean. You need to do what I mean. But while it's easy to laugh at children's antics, I don't know that that always changes when we get older. I think that all of us can have that same kind of lawyer attitude in the way we read the Ten Commandments. What often strikes me when I hear a lot of Christians talk about how they read them is how narrowly we apply those. They make them only about this one narrow thing, and they say, yes, you know, I didn't do this one thing, so I'm fine. The problem with that is that each commandment is broad. It's meant to cover a whole range of things. We already kind of noticed that last week, and starting this week as we dig into the commandments, I want to spell that out for us. And the way I want to do that is by offering three rules that we're going to use this morning, but that we're also going to refer back to throughout the series. Three rules we should all kind of have in the back of our heads when we think about how we read the Ten Commandments, all right? And the first rule is just that the commandments are categories. The Ten Commandments are each meant to cover a category of sin. They take the worst or most obvious example of sin, and they prohibit that, but they're also meant to speak to a range of sins that are connected with them. You can see that as you see the way Scripture itself unrolls the Ten Commandments. So you think about, like, the commandment not to murder, right? That forbids murder, but that also forbids other things. It condemns physical violence, even if you don't end up killing the person, right? It condemns assaulting people, domestic violence, things like that. It also condemns being reckless with the safety of other people. So if you, like, have a building that you don't keep up the fire code in a really dangerous way and it catches fire, right, that would be breaking that commandment. Or driving under the influence, things that would endanger people's lives. Um, And on top of that, Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount that each of these commandments is connected to the things that precede it, too. So a prohibition against murder would include things like hatred and rage. And obviously murder is not our commandment for today, and we'll talk more about that in a few weeks. But the point to recognize is that that's really true of each of the commandments, that each of them stands in for a category of sins that we can commit. So that's the first rule. And then the second one is that the commandments include the heart. The commandments are meant to govern our heart attitudes as well as our actions. Um, We already can see this in that the first and the tenth commandment are explicitly about the hearts. When we're told to not have gods before the Lord, and we're told not to covet, right? Those are directly applied to the heart. But as we already mentioned, Jesus, for example, applies the other commandments to the heart, too. When he talks about how prohibitions against murder and adultery include things like anger and lust in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying that our heart attitudes are meant to be shaped by these commandments. Scripture reminds us that the Lord does not look at the things people look at, because people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's a reminder to us that we are accountable for those internal things, our thoughts and our imaginings and the dreams that we chase, those things that we entertain. Each of these commandments is meant to speak to what's inside of us. And then the third rule is that the commandments include the positive. Each commandment is meant to also call us to something as well as prohibiting something. 
we talked last week about how both the Old Testament itself and Jesus define the central law as love, right? And see the Ten Commandments as outworkings of love. And that's supposed to remind us that we have this positive task of loving people that's supposed to be shaped by the Ten Commandments. And so each time that we look at the things that it forbids, we're supposed to also say, well, that also means there's good things we're called to. Like we mentioned, the Sixth Commandment, right? It forbids this category of things, but it would also call us to protect other people and care about the lives of other people. And so each of the commandments is meant to call us to something positive. And I put those rules up there now, because like we said, we're going to come back to them in a couple of minutes. But um, we're also going to use them throughout the series. And, um, and all of those together might mean that the Ten Commandments often meet us in ways that I don't know that we expect. That we, we might think, oh yeah, we're going to get this, and then as we dig into it, it meets us in unexpected ways. And that's maybe especially true of the Second Commandment. So we're going to turn to that, but first we're going to read what to many of you might be a familiar story from the book of Exodus. Um, in Exodus 32... We read the story of the golden calf. And what's happening, so Moses is up on the mountain, right? And he's getting the law from the Lord. And the mountain's covered in fire and smoke and lightning. And he's up there for 40 days, and Israel is down at the foot of the mountain. And they start to wonder where their fearless leader is. And so let's pick up. We heard it from Exodus 32. It says that when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come. Make us gods who will go before us. I'll just note this here. Whenever it says gods, the the singular and plural, it could could mean a god or gods. That'll become important in a minute. But But then they say, as for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. (laughs) Um, And it's tempting to just be like, seriously, you're, you're already looking for other gods. But remember, these people left Egypt three months ago, right? And while the Lord has miraculously provided for them, for the last, like, month, You know, Moses, who's been leading and giving God's word to them, has been up on the mountain that's covered in fire, and for all they know, he's dead. So while this is sin, it's sort of an understandable sin. And then here is Aaron's answer. And Aaron is Moses' brother and becomes the high priest of Israel. So he should know better than this. But we read then, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So the people took off their earrings. And brought them to Aaron. And this is the gold that they got from Egypt, probably, right? As the Lord led them out, he caused them to have favor in the Egyptians' eyes, and they gave them gold and jewelry. But then what happens is that Aaron took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And so Aaron makes this golden calf, and the the Israelites say, Here's our God, or our gods. I'll pause for a minute, because that story that I just told you, that I feel like is usually where we stop the story, and then they worship these gods, and then it's done. But there's something really important that happens next in the story, all right? So listen to what Aaron does. It says that when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings, and afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So this is easy to miss, but it's crucial to the actual story's place in Exodus. So Aaron makes this golden calf, 
and he builds this altar in front of it once he sees that the people like it and are going to worship it. And he declares a festival to the Lord. And you'll notice in your Bibles that that's the, the word that's all capital letters, right? Lord, which as if you were with us earlier in Exodus, we talked about means that's Yahweh. It's the name of the Lord, God, that he gives to Moses. Um, and so Aaron says, look, this calf isn't some other god. This is Yahweh. And he builds an altar, and they come and offer fellowship offerings and burnt offerings, which are some of the specific offerings commanded in God's law that they're supposed to offer to this statue of the Lord. It seems like, in a sense, Aaron's trying to salvage the situation, right? He's like, well, they've got this golden calf, but we'll tell them that it's, that it's the Lord, and then we'll be fine. And the people seem to buy it. They seem to go along with this idea. But then we see, um, well, we won't dig into it because I expect in a few months we'll be going through this text again. We see God come and declare judgment for this sin. Um, he kind of delightfully refers to Israel as your people, <laughs> talking to Moses there. Um, but, but clearly this is a problem. It's just that what's important to recognize is this is not a story about Israel breaking the first commandment. It's a story about Israel breaking the second commandment that let's look at the commandment so here's what it says it says you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below you shall not bow down to them or worship them and then it goes on to give a warning and a blessing which we'll come to in a couple minutes but let's consider what that says they are forbidden to create an image of anything in creation and worshiping it and the important thing to recognize is that it does not say an image of a false god. What tends to happen, I think, is that most people read this commandment and it's sort of just restating the first commandment. It's like, don't worship other gods and then don't make statues of other gods. Seem to be how people summarize it. But that's not what it's forbidding. This, now, obviously, right, statues of false gods would be forbidden by the second commandment. But it also applies to the Lord. Israel is forbidden to make images of him as well in worship um, or, you know, or in any sort of religious sense. They're not supposed to make images of God. Consider this fuller statement from Deuteronomy where Moses spells out the same idea in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. Do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has appointed to all the nations under heaven. Notice the, the logic there, right? He says, God had no form when you met him on the mountain. He's talking about this experience they have. Therefore, you are not to become corrupt and make any image of any shape. And he's talking about the worship of the Lord. All right? Um... And that's Israel's sin in this story. Like we said, they make this golden calf, and they, they say that it's the, the, the one true God, but they're worshiping it as him. And it actually becomes a repeated sin in Israel's history. Interestingly, much later when we have kings of Israel and the kingdom splits, the first thing the northern kingdom does is erect their own temples to the Lord on these two mountains and put golden calves in, in the mountains where they're going to they're gonna go worship him by that means. Um, they make an image— and that leads them into corruption. So remember, we said we've got these three rules, and each commandment is to be understood broadly, and we're going to get to them in a minute. 
But the second commandment is actually kind of strange in that even its narrow, immediate application is one that I don't know that we always spend a lot of time reflecting on. Um, Some Christians disagree with this assessment, and that's fine. This is one of those areas where there's a few debates. But our tradition of Christianity within Protestantism has always historically understood um, the second commandment as immediately prohibiting image-making of God, period. We read from the Westminster Confession, um, the Catechism, a little earlier, and that's part of our church's historic statement of faith from um, from like 400 years ago. But it says, the second commandment forbids creating any likeness of God as the Trinity or as any one of his three persons, either internally in our minds or externally in the form of any kind of image or representation of a created being which is an attempt to say kind of what we read in Deuteronomy 4 there, that God has no form, we ought not portray him as that. And so that means that while there's broader applications we're going to make in a minute, in its immediate sense, things like this are a big problem. Um, And (laughs) we might be tempted to laugh, but painting God the Father as a human being (laughs) is a violation of God's prohibition to make, you know, no images of him. Um, And I have that little sensor box up there because we shouldn't have idols in worship. And we all see that and we might think, oh, that's overreacting. But just think about this for a minute. How many people in our world, when they think of God, picture basically that painting? They picture God as an old white dude with a big beard in the sky. And that shapes how they interact with him and how they understand him and what they think he's like. I meet people all the time who have that image in their heads and it actually warps the way they think about God. Which is the point of this commandment, that any image of the true God reduces and distorts him. He is not like any created thing. And so when, I mean, when Israel makes a golden calf, right, they're not trying to say something bad about God. Calves are this image of blessing and of strength and power. They're trying to, you know, to make an image of that thing. But it does reduce and distort the reality of the invisible God. The golden calf, in a sense, is easier to handle, which is why in the story that we read, there's a striking— if you actually think about it, like behind them is the mountain where the glory of the Lord is actually made manifest. And what they say is we'd rather offer our sacrifices to this calf. That immediate application of the second commandment also challenges other things that are pretty common in the world. So like this movie, for example, and I realize people um, (laughs) will not necessarily like this, but— Look, people argued about The Shack as a book and a movie for a bunch of reasons, and I'm not going to get into any of those. I'm not interested in having that discussion this morning. But the thing that strikes me when you think about this movie is I don't understand how that's not violating the second commandment, to have actors who play the three persons of the Trinity, right? And and what's striking to me, actually, I mean, I read the book, um, is that, like, he understands the problem with image-making. The whole— Like, the whole book is meant to be a critique of, like, God, the old bearded white guy in heaven, right? And so he portrays God as a black woman instead. And he's right in critiquing that that old image of God, you know, like, distorted God. But, I mean, (laughs) substituting a new wrong image, right, doesn't doesn't solve that problem. Um, I mean, God is too vast to be contained by any image, and so he does prohibit making images of him. One last note about that immediate application. And like I said, then we're going to talk about some broader ways that it speaks to our heart. Um, Some people hear that and they say, well, what about pictures of Jesus? And that is actually a little bit more complicated because Jesus was God and a human being. 
in fact. Paul says that he was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. Um, And so Christians debate whether it's okay to have pictures of Jesus. You can find those debates throughout history. And a couple of notes about that. One is that the fact that Christians, for most of history, did really debate that means we shouldn't probably be as comfortable with it as we are. There's some sense in which that probably just indicates that we haven't reflected on some of those things. But two, I do think pictures of Jesus are permissible in appropriate settings. Because we do want to communicate that in Jesus, God was a real human being, right? So like, you know, in our children's kids' Bibles, right? You know, in your Sunday school class where you have the picture of Jesus and the disciples, whatever, like that, that's probably fine. Um, Although even there, we need to be careful. In the first place, we can still turn those things into idols because while they have uses, we cannot worship them, right? We ought not worship them. And even those pictures of Jesus can distort our image of what God looks like. I mean, here are three pictures that, you know, people have made of Jesus. And the question is, which one of those is Jesus? And the correct answer is none of them, right? You know, I mean, none of those people are Jesus. But all of us naturally feel more connected to one of those pictures. And what makes the difference is not what Jesus looks like, but what we look like. And that's really getting at the heart of this commandment again. The problem with making images of God is that we almost always end up making him look more like us. Just like Israel, we try to make him safer, easier to understand, less challenging. And that's what the second commandment is really about. So that's the immediate application. But that also helps speak to us of some of the broader applications of the commandment. Remember, we said there are a couple of rules that should shape how we approach these, and we're just going to walk through them. We said the first rule is that the commandments are categories. So what's the category of things that the second commandment is about? Um, Well, one um, way of thinking about it is that this is a commandment that calls us to worship God only in the ways he commands. To worship God only in the ways he commands. So take this from Deuteronomy 12. Moses is again preparing Israel to come into the land. And he starts with this warning. He says, And after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods. Talking about the people of Canaan. Saying, How do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. Notice what's happening, right? It's not that Israel is going and serving these foreign gods in this story. It's that Israel comes and drives out the Canaanites and sees the ways they worship their gods and then says, oh, well, let's do that with the Lord. And then it goes on to forbid that. It says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. You must not worship the Lord in their way. And he sums up the commandment then like this. He says, see that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. The key thing to recognize is that add to it part, right? Moses isn't just saying don't take away things from the true worship of God, but he's saying also we shouldn't add things. Well, how can that happen? I mean, really, I feel like there's a lot of ways, but let me just name two. One is that in our world, it is very common for us to see books or TV shows or preachers come along and they say, let me give you the spiritual secret, right? Like, you've got, um, you know... 
they, they say, okay, yeah, you've got all that, you know, that normal Christian stuff, but like there's this secret thing that you need to add, and you've missed it. And if you just added this thing to the normal Christian thing that you're doing, then you would experience like blessing and joy and everything would be great. Now, here's the thing about that. Sometimes when people say that, it's really just marketing, right? Like, sometimes people are going to say something that is fine and biblical, and it's just that they're trying to spin it in that way. Um, It's still bad marketing, and you should not market it that way. But, you know, I mean, sometimes those things are fine, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes um, they end up telling us that what we need is to add some things to Christianity that God hasn't given us. And it's a denial of the fact that God has given us in these ordinary means of grace that we have um, everything that we need for life and godliness, right? While we will struggle and have to work to apply them and can continue to grow, there isn't some like secret sauce that you have to go discover in order to grow in God. Likewise, we can also um, violate this category about worshiping God in the ways he commands um, by taking things away from the worship of God. There's an instinct sometimes in our world also um, to lower the bar, right, for for Christianity and Christian worship. And again, sometimes that's fine and good. Sometimes we need to make things more accessible and, you know, and help people to understand and be welcoming, and that's all good. But sometimes our temptation there, too, is that we can start removing essential pieces of Christianity and say, look, you know, we'll just, we'll make this easy. Like, we'll take away some of the stuff that God calls us to, and then you can easily access it. And when we do that, what we're calling those people into isn't Christianity. So that's the first rule. And then the second one, when we think about the second commandment, it says that the commandments include the heart. And the simplest thing to recognize there is that those false images of God don't require us to have a furnace and a whole bunch of gold to construct. All that we need is a sinful imagination. One of the constant temptations we have is to to let ourselves think about God in ways that that warp him or make him more like us. Um, J.I. Packer, who's this theologian and author and is great, but in his book, Knowing God, he has this wonderful little explanation of the second commandment. And it includes this observation. And I'm just going to read this all to you because I couldn't say it better than he does. I would just be plagiarizing him. But he says... The realization that images and pictures of God affect our thoughts of God points to a further realm in which the second commandment applies. Just as it forbids us to manufacture molten images of God, so it forbids us to dream up mental images of him. Imagining God in our heads can be just as real a breach of the second commandment as imagining him in the works of our hands. How often do you hear this sort of thing? I like to think of God as the great architect or mathematician or artist. I don't think of God as a judge. I like to think of him simply as a father. We should know from experience how often remarks of this kind serve as the prelude to a denial of something that the Bible tells us about God. It needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. At best, they can only think of God in the image of man, as an ideal man, or perhaps a superman. But God is not any sort of man. We were made in his image, but we must not think of him as existing in ours. To think of God in such terms is to be ignorant of him. If God 
is easy for us to believe, right? If nothing about him ever challenges us and we feel free to take this kind of potluck approach to who he is where we just take the dishes we like, then there's a very real possibility that the being that we think we're worshiping isn't God anymore. He's just some made-up being that sort of looks like us. And obeying the second commandment means that we need to be seeking to have our hearts be shaped um, in the ways that reflect who God truly is, and that we should watch out for those impulses to remake him. And then the last rule, which is that the commandments include the positive. What is this commandment calling us into? And the simplest answer to that is that if this commandment prohibits wrong worship, it also calls us into right worship. Maybe it's useful to discuss what that means. Scripture lays out a number of these elements that together are what it means when it says worship the Lord. We're called to prayer and thanksgiving, to loving God's word through its reading and preaching and study and hearing, to receive baptism in the Lord's Supper, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to gather together as believers in churches with God-ordained leaders and authentic fellowship. All of that together is included when scripture talks about worship. And the second commandment would call us not to neglect those things, but rather to pursue and practice them. That includes weekly as we gather as the church, and it also includes in our private lives and in our families and in the fellowship of the saints together. The second commandment calls us to that, and it also provides a hint as to why those things are important. Like we said, right, the problem with breaking the second commandment is that we end up with a warped view of God. And then that ends up warping, you know, our Christianity and what it looks like to follow God. But if that's true, then the opposite is also true. That using those God-ordained means and worshiping him in truth shapes us to grow to be more like God. We end up being remade in his image as we worship him rightly. So that is the second commandment in all of its breadth. And as we consider everything it touches, I want to offer an observation and then return to the text and note two final things. First, the observation is that one of the challenging things about digging into the fullness of the Bible's moral teachings is that it suggests that we are all more sinful than we think. That's one of the weights I feel, thinking about the second commandment, thinking about the next few weeks, talking about some of these commandments that we don't spend a lot of time on. Um, we are much more sinful than we often think. And that is often a hard message for us as Christians to hear, especially in our part of the world where we have a lot invested in being good moral people, right? Where we we really have a lot hanging on that idea. Um, That can make it very hard for us. And the reason for that is because the way we tend to make ourselves good moral people is by being those lawyers we talked about earlier, who take the commandments only in their narrowest possible sense. Um, I mean, I think about, in our culture, what does it mean to be a good moral person, right? When Christians talk that way. I mean, it means like, well, we don't cuss, or at least not much. We don't watch certain movies, although we can debate which ones it is. We avoid really obvious sexual sins. We haven't, like, killed anybody or robbed any banks, right? You know, that's the kind of list that we compile. Maybe you could add a few things to it. 
But the thing about that list is that while we could discuss a few of the details, like, that's a fine list, but it is a tiny sliver of what Scripture views as morality. Just think about the second commandment. It's saying that any image we have ever had, physical or mental, of God that confuses him with a created being or a human being, that that is sin. That any time we have downplayed some aspect of who God is because it was inconvenient or because it was challenging to us, that that is sin. That anything we have added to the worship of God because it seems cool or because it's the way we've always done things, that anything like that is sin. It means that our failure in our daily private lives and our families and as a gathered church to engage in worship, both to do it and to do it from the heart, that that is sin. We are neck deep in sin, I feel like, if we really wrestle with Scripture. We're, you know, we're treading water in this ocean of it, and we hold up this eyedropper, and we're like, well, I'm not doing these things, and so I'm a good moral person. And in light of that, there are two wrong ways we can respond. There are two things we can do once we start to grapple with the breadth of our sin that are problematic. One— is to use that as an excuse not to fight sin. We can look out at that ocean of sin and we can say, well, there is no point in even trying to tread water in this thing. And that, I think, is why God joins this commandment with a warning. If we read in Exodus 20, he says, You shall not make an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. We talked last week about the idea that God is a jealous God, and so I'm not going to rehash that. You're welcome to go listen to last week's sermon online if you would like. But the thing to recognize this morning is that what God is seeking to say is, no, seriously, I am calling you to keep this commandment. And there are consequences if you don't. In fact, I found myself wondering as I sat with this commandment, which I will readily admit is not one that I spent a lot of time dwelling on either without going into this series. But one of the ways our world is very different from the world of Jesus and the early church is that we live in a world that's very okay, at least historically has been very okay with Christianity, right? That's kind of what we're used to. And um, I think, though, the more I reflect on the world that we live in, that part of that okayness came from our willingness to just jettison pieces of Christianity whenever they came into conflict with the world. That whenever what Scripture says contradicted what our culture says, whenever it seemed too hard for people, we would kind of snip, you know, <laughs> cut off that bit and, and get rid of it. Um, and I don't just mean that we've done that recently. I mean, for hundreds of years, in a sense, the church has done that. It's the reason that when we say, what, what's Christian morals, right? It's such an insanely short list, because it, it didn't used to be historically. But the reason for that is that we've kind of snipped away and snipped away over the decades. And, um, and that may be part of why Christianity in America struggles so much today and is so anemic and seems so incapable of challenging the culture. Maybe that's because we've just gotten so comfortable with breaking the second commandment. That one of the consequences of those centuries of remaking God in our image is that it has affected us and affected our children. And we need to take the call to worship God rightly. 
But if that is one wrong reaction, right, to say, oh, well, sin runs really deep, so we shouldn't try to fight it, the other mistake we can make is to let that ocean of sin cause us to give up. So here's the thing. We recognize our guilt, and we can feel broken by that guilt. And in a sense, we're supposed to, because one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments is to break us. God's law is meant to make us recognize that we are more sinful than we think. And that should destroy our pride and our self-righteousness and our reliance on ourselves. But the purpose of that is to reorient our hope onto God's love. That's the second half of that commandment, right? He says, if you keep reading, um, he says that he'll punish, right, to the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's a priority there to God's love, even as he threatens judgment, right? It's to the third and fourth generation that it can have effects, but to a thousand generations since somehow, right? God's love can ripple outward and work transformation. But maybe we still struggle with that, especially because of that last phrase, keep my commandments, right? Because part of what we're being confronted by is the sense that we don't keep God's commandments. And that's where the story of scripture as a whole is so important. See, what Israel is forced to realize from very early on in the Old Testament is that the commandments of God are more than they can keep. In fact, sometimes it just comes out and tells them that, like in the book of Joshua. And that's part of the point. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in his letter to the Galatians. He starts with an observation. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. He talks about what we're feeling there, right? We see the law in all its breadth, and and we're like, and if we're trying to say, I'm just going to follow the law and be righteous before God, he says, you're cursed because all of us break this thing, right? And the only way to, to make that your righteousness is perfect obedience. But then he says, that's the point. He says, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So he goes back to Abraham there in that quote, and he's talking about how, how Abraham is made righteous by his faith. Um, and he says, look, if righteousness came from the law, then you could just follow the law. But it, it doesn't, right? Because we all break it, and that's why righteousness comes from faith. And how does that work? Well, then he says it rests on Jesus. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus suffered the curse we should have suffered in order to bring us into right relationship with God. Here is what that means. That means that unlike us, Jesus perfectly kept the law. That list of, that crazy list of like never having a mental image of God, you know, in the image of a created thing and never changing anything about him to suit us. Jesus never did that. He was perfectly righteous and obedient to the law. And Jesus then suffered in his death, the consequences we should suffer, that curse of the law that we feel, right? That judgment to the third and fourth generation that should be on our heads. He suffered that on our behalf. So that if we have faith in Christ, if we repent and trust in him, then we are a part of that thousand generations that God loves and is blessing. Now that does not mean that we are not called to keep this commandment. 
That's the important thing to recognize. We are, this is God's will for our lives, and when we fail to keep it, there are consequences. But it means that we can seek to keep it from a foundation of grace. The fact that we do this imperfectly and the fact that we will struggle and fail at it, that should not make us despair, but instead it is just another opportunity to rejoice in what Jesus has done by keeping the law on our behalf. That's actually a theme we're going to return to over and over in this series. We are a lot worse than we think. Just come back next week and we'll talk about that again, right? I mean, God's, God's word does convict us and show us the ways that we fall short. Even the best of us on our best days are still deserving of God's judgment. But God does not judge us because Jesus has paid for those sins. And in him we have forgiveness and righteousness. And as we recognize those sins, that should cause us to rejoice all the more. In his love and grace. God does not love us because we're good moral people. He loves us knowing that we are far worse than we realize. And that is a beautiful truth. It's also a truth that naturally leads us to the table. So let's pray and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. God and Father, I thank you for your grace and love and pray that it might encourage and call us to worship you in fullness and truth. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus.